1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, an associate professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. Today, we'll be getting into more political economy, looking at the evolution of labor activism in China. Our guest is Professor Manfred Elfstrom from the Department of Economics, Philosophy and Political Science at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan. He received his Ph.D. from Cornell University and previously held postdoctoral fellowships at the University of Southern California and at Harvard University. We're going to be talking about his book, Workers and Change in China, Resistance, Repression, Responsiveness. This book just came out this year from Cambridge University Press as part of its prestigious series, Cambridge Studies in Contentious Politics. So, Manfred, thanks so much for joining us. Um, first off, why don't you tell us a little bit of background about yourself and you know, how you got interested in the topic of uh, worker activism in China?
2: Well, thanks, first of all, so much for having me. Um, in terms of how I got into the project, in grad school, I was told that you're supposed to start with a dependent variable side puzzle and essentially work backward, uh, find something uh, unusual, some unusual outcome or contrast. Uh, But my project was born out of my interest in what, uh, if any outcome, something I'd been involved in for a while, namely labor activism in China, might be having over the long haul. So in other words, it was an independent uh, variable-focused project. I'd worked for a number of years with
0: groups in the States uh,
2: supporting workers' rights and improved grassroots governance in China, and I just wanted to know what it all added up to.
1: Okay. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you did uh, in your, your pre-grad school life? Like how, what was what your so, involvement? I, yeah.
2: uh, so what I was involved with uh, for the longest period uh, was a, a set of programs run by a group called International Labor Rights Forum uh, based out of Washington, D.C. And on the one hand, we supported labor law clinics in Chinese law schools, you know, basically training uh, young uh, law students on uh, labor side uh, litigation in the hopes that some of them would take on workers' cases when they graduated. And then on the other hand, we worked with grassroots labor NGOs, uh, mostly down in the Pearl River Delta. Uh, I also spent a little bit of time with a small group in New York that has sort of muckraking investigations called China Labor Watch.
1: Okay. So then, so you had this, you've been working in this area and you're saying you sort of took that as your, in the jargon, your, your independent variable, you're saying, you know, we're, there's all this labor activism and, you know, you're trying to help out with it, uh, you know, uh, from, from the States, um, with these different, uh, different groups. And the question is, you know, what, what, if anything was actually being achieved? Is that right? Exactly. Um, I put in a couple years
2: in this work, and when you're in the midst of running programs, you're basically spending most of your uh, bandwidth on um, uh, tracking uh, balance sheets, uh, following up with project partners, uh, following the day-to-day news, uh, but you're not able to
1: step back and sort of see where it's all going, and that's what I wanted to do uh, when I went to grad school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's what academics are for. Right? Getting, getting, <laughs> taking that step back and having the, the time to be be thoughtful and design research to, um, to look at the big picture or or to look at smaller pictures um, in a more uh, more precise way. Um, all right, so getting into the actual topic, um, you know, as a socialist country, uh, and there's different ways if you could think of, like, depending where people are coming from, what they might expect to be from China. Like, why you think of them as a socialist country, where uh, you know workers would. Be you know they're the proletariat right? That's what Marxism is supposed to be all about. So you might expect them to be have a lot of influence in politics and get taken of uh, to get taken care of very well. Um, or on the other hand, you might be coming at it from the frame of you know autocracy, uh, where you'd assume that any kind of you know strikes or street mobilization by uh, ordinary citizens that wasn't um, explicitly you know mandated in the form of like parades by the state uh, would get repressed. So. Um, what is what is actually happening in, in China like how much you know worker activism is there and and what does it look like is it you know mass riots in the streets is it you know what what's really happening and I know there's a huge amount of variation so the question is yeah what, what is the range of that variation as well I
2: generally think of China as a post socialist uh, country I think it shares a lot of characteristics with uh places in the former Soviet Union, uh, with some parts of the Middle East. And I think that legacy uh, from the past kind of cuts in two ways. Uh, On the one hand, I think the fact that uh, China once uh, proclaimed uh, that it was a worker state has gotten in the way of dealing with labor abuses uh, for a while in the 80s, 90s. Uh, China basically sort of assumed a harmony of interest between employers and employees uh, that uh, didn't hold under state socialism, under Mao, but really didn't hold um, once they introduced market reforms. And um, on the other hand, I think uh, that pass is a real uh, weapon uh, for workers. It's uh, something they can hold against the government uh, in a way that, uh, say, uh, religious dissidents can't or uh, environmental camp- campaigners can't necessarily, uh, um, groups on China's uh, periphery, uh, so-called ethnic minorities uh, can't necessarily. So so it's, it's something that's gotten in the way of um, addressing really deep-seated issues in China's uh, workplaces, but it's also Maybe a resource for workers in terms of what's going on on the ground. Um, basically, everything is going on, and it's been going on at a really high level uh, for the past couple uh, decades. Uh, so you have, you know, small uh, forms of um, of shirking and um, and going slow. Uh, you have. Um, petitions, uh, legal uh, attempts at at getting back pay or compensation for work injuries. You have gathering outside of government buildings with banners or singing songs. You have blocking roads. I was stuck in uh, traffic in Shenzhen for a couple hours a long time ago because a group of women uh, from a nearby factory had linked arms across the highway. Uh, You have strikes. Uh, You have Uh, occupying shop floors um, especially when factories are about to shut down so that uh, the machinery isn't taken out before workers get uh, what's due them and in a couple uh, still rare instances you have uh, linking up across factories and across uh, cities even so in the past couple years you've had uh, dock workers, crane operators, organized nationwide strikes. You've seen some similar similar things with uh, truckers. So you have a wide variety of things going on. It's hard to nail down the exact scale because China doesn't keep official strike statistics, uh, but the strike map that I've maintained and the more up-to-date map that uh, China Labor Bulletin, uh, Hong Kong-based advocacy group maintains, uh, show uh, thousands of incidents happening every year, uh, which is, you know, multiples of what you have in uh, the United States uh, or European countries. Uh, so it's really a, a phenomenal uh, level of unrest.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's a that's a great thing that, you know, that that phrase unrest is really one that, um, you know, raises a lot of uh, flags. And, and actually, that it was it's a great point, though, what you made about, uh, you know, China's socialist legacy, in a sense, being a barrier, you know, I think, I was almost even, uh, you know, on behalf of many people in America, thinking, "Oh, socialist legacy being a barrier towards, you know, moving towards marketization." Um, but I think your point is a different one—that you know, the socialist legacy, because it defined the workers as being having identical interests as the state or the company. So then, you know, anything, there would be no reason for there to be an institution or any kind of framework in which, uh, you know, people could resolve disagreements, you know, know, when they got to the point of like closing down factories or, you know, or obviously opening up, you know, new factories as foreign investors and, and, and private entrepreneurs of various sorts started then becoming the employers, whereas before it had all been government. In either case, there's no idea of, oh, of course, you know, conflict is natural. You know, you're going to want yours, and I'm going to want mine, and we've got to find a way to to kind of work that out in a way that's uh, doesn't cause too much um, too much uh, you know chaos or disruption um, unnecessarily. You know, which is kind of what we aspire for with all the different um, you know, don't know achieve, but what we aspire aspire to in uh, in you know developed countries. You know, everyone's got their own formula, and no one's ever entirely happy. But uh, but that's the idea. In China, there's not even an idea that we need a formula to to resolve this. Um, and then you're saying, um, but you know, the, the idea of unrest is, is an interesting one. So, so last week, and I think this one will come out before, um, uh, we, uh, our podcast, I interviewed Yali, who's, uh, was looking at, you know, protests as a phenomenon, which obviously overlaps a lot with your work. And I know you guys have collaborated more recently. Um, but you know, her, her interest is primarily on the political stability. Um, so maybe we could, uh at a risk of jumping ahead a little bit, like you mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of the protests are, you know, more typically, or not protests, I mean, labor activism more broadly, might be more small scale, you know, petitioning local government or, you know, doing a work stoppage, or even just a slowdown or, you know, striking within one factory. But you did mention that, you know, there have in recent years even been, uh, you mentioned dock workers and truckers, like having a, a nationwide strike. So, you know, that that starts to sound like solidarity in Poland, which is kind of, every autocrat's fear. So how do you, um, how, how are those, how do those come about and how are they, how were they dealt with by the state?
2: So that kind of linking up, I should emphasize again, is really, uh, rare and, uh, maybe most uh, disturbing for the state is when the linking up, uh, spills over social boundaries and takes on a kind of cross class character. Mm -hmm. Uh, A couple years ago, 2018, 2019, there was this well-known case where a group of uh, Marxist students traveled to Shenzhen uh, to support some protesting uh, workers at an electronics factory called the JASIC factory. And that, I think, really set off alarm bells uh, with the government. Uh, Students were they Uh, not just in Shenzhen, but uh, back on their home campuses in Beijing and Nanjing and elsewhere, shoved into vans uh, in broad uh, daylight. And uh, the student organizations that had uh, been behind this were completely reorganized. Uh, So the Marxist student group at uh, Beida uh, went from uh, holding events for migrant workers in the evenings um, to... Uh, reading uh, books about uh, Confucianism and and Xi Jinping's thought and that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, So there's a sort of whole, uh, you know, comprehensive crackdown in that instance. When it doesn't quite uh, reach uh, that level, I think workers pushing the boundaries um, pushes the government uh, to... Sort of jettison its sort of orthodox way of handling um, contention uh, and move in a slightly more uh, risk taking direction. Uh, that is, uh, both being uh, harsher than usual, uh, but also uh, maybe initiating some reforms. Uh, that that represent a little bit of a gamble.
1: Okay, yeah. So you're kind of getting here into a little bit of the theory of your book. So we will, let, we'll let us let's come back to that. Um, but maybe to set the stage more now, um, can you tell us? You know how did you how did you investigate this topic? You mentioned uh, the strike map, um, and I knew you did a lot of field work. Why don't you just give us a quick rundown of that? Obviously, it's very sensitive. So you know, it's not like you can do, I presume, a nationally representative you know survey or. You know just kind of go anywhere you want and talk to anywhere you want anyone you want so so how do, how do you manage it in a uh, difficult research environment
2: yeah i was maybe a little bit uh, naive about how easy this would be uh, because i had that background uh, with labor ngos uh, with international solidarity work and because in that previous role i'd been able to uh, not just talk to the worker centers and the universities i mentioned but also engage uh, Chinese trade union officials and uh, judges and arbitrators and stuff I thought it would be uh, fairly straightforward to pick up those old uh, ties and just start knocking on doors um, and uh, it wasn't I think part of it is just that I was a PhD student and uh, there's not a lot to gain from talking to PhD students and you know a tiny outside risk that uh, they'll reveal something. Embarrassing and part of it is just that uh, the Xi era had uh, started and things were a bit uh, tighter even when I did my field work But basically uh, I spent a chunk of time in the uh, Pearl River Delta and a chunk of time in the Yangtze River Delta uh, talking to labor activists uh, many of whom I already knew uh, from my old uh, work uh, talking to workers Um, at their job sites, uh, sometimes uh, via activists, um, engaging uh, business people uh, as much as possible, and then uh, slowly, slowly making the connections to be able to talk to some officials uh, in the trade union, in uh, the labor bureau, in different places. And uh, all the while, uh, in my downtime, collecting yearbooks and uh, assembling my uh,
1: statistics uh, to look at the bigger picture. Okay. So you focused on, I think this is relevant also, is you focused on the Yangtze uh, Yangtze uh, Delta and the Pearl River Delta. So those are both, um, you know, basically for people that don't know China, like that's the area kind of near Shanghai and Hangzhou, um, and then the area uh, between Guangzhou and Hong Kong. And both of those are, uh know really new newly industrial well not not completely new but like industrial areas that are very internationally engaged and with a very large uh private or or quasi-private uh market economy Um, so a lot of these the labor disputes you'd have you would would have been looking at there would be more with uh private or or foreign-owned firms um as opposed to like the um earlier waves of uh, labor dispute in China um, that occurred like in the late 90s and early 2000s, which were more um, more centered in like Northeast China and kind of the old decrepit steel mills and so forth.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, I chose these two places because they were, uh, to my mind, uh, the closest uh, thing uh, to similar areas you could find in China. A similar in terms of uh, their number of migrant workers, similar in terms of foreign investment, uh, similar in terms of general uh, development, uh, but different um, in terms of their levels of labor unrest. Not dramatically different. They're both sort of on the high end. Uh, The Guangdong is kind of off the charts, uh, but but nonetheless uh, different Uh, when it comes to uh, what workers were doing. And maybe it's worth sort of emphasizing that the whole project, uh, it's really focused on the the last uh, decade uh, plus, Mm -hmm. and um, those cases kind of reflect that. If I had wanted to to really uh, have more to say about activism and state-owned enterprises and the Rust Belt, uh, then I would have gone there as well.
1: Yeah, but that's definitely you know as you mentioned that's not as much of a uh, a current issue. So I know it makes sense that you were focusing on those areas. Um, so um, yeah, so why don't we get into sort of how how you uh, you know what your findings were? So the the key starting point of of your argument is that there are different recipes for resistance uh, in different areas. So so tell us more about what is a recipe for resistance and uh, you know how can you. Yeah, what is it? What are the differences between them? And then, you know, how, how does that lead to different outcomes?
2: Again, my real interest uh, was in the outcome of worker militancy. But I didn't feel like I could address the outcome without uh, at least, you know, dipping my toe into the causes of the militancy in the uh, first place. And so at the beginning of the book, I sketch out a series of factors uh, that um, that seem to clump around uh, more contained uh, resistance on the one hand and um, more outright uh, transgressive resistance, or what Kevin O'Brien calls a more sort of intermediary boundary re-spanning uh, resistance on the other. And, and here I'm not you know, reinventing the wheel. I'm, not trying to come up with some sort of big uh, universal law of why workers protest, but just kind of uh, descriptively sort of pulling together uh, the different things uh, that seem to go into each of these uh, kinds of activism. Uh, and more contained activism, I found, uh, tends to occur uh, where you have a more high-skilled uh, work, uh, heavier industries, uh, that kind of thing. Um, more uh, boundary-spanning or outright transgressive resistance, on the other hand, that uh, tends to come where you have a lot of migrant workers, uh, first of all, and where you have more sort of labor-intensive light industries. And, you know, a little uh, um, factor that, you know, cuts across different regions of the country uh, then would be uh, just transportation and logistics uh, were associated uh, with more radical action.
1: So what's, uh, so, so as you said, you know, this is, other people have looked at that a little bit before, but what is, uh, for for you, how would you characterize the cutoff between kind of, or not the cutoff, but like, you know, what is what is contained and kind of accepted, you know, playing playing by the rules kind of activism versus this transgressive or boundary spanning? Could you give some examples of, of each or like the key factors that make something, you know, kind of okay or kind of not okay from the government's perspective? Yeah. It depends a little bit
2: on the context. So some out of the way uh, part of China that just hasn't experienced a lot of labor unrest, uh, that place uh, might experience uh, it's really uh, mild forms of activism as disruptive, you know, people petitioning. Uh, that kind of thing might be a big deal in those places, whereas it um, doesn't really register uh, in a place like Guangdong. But in general, um, the way I've divided things up is petitioning, bringing legal cases, uh, maybe gathering on a particular uh, shop floor, Uh, that kind of thing is uh, contained. Uh, Making demands that basically don't exceed what the law provides for workers, uh, that's also uh, contained. Uh, When you get into more sort of boundary-spanning stuff, you're talking about uh, strikes, that is, you know, Stopping uh, production, uh, protests that spill out into the streets, um, demands uh, that maybe uh, go beyond uh, the letter of the law to include uh, calls for uh, more, uh, for more uh, in terms of benefits, higher wages, that kind of thing. And uh, when it comes to organizations uh, linking up in a somewhat bigger way, uh, maybe drawing in. Uh, local, uh, non-governmental organizations. And when you're all the way out at the uh, transgressive end of things, uh, you're talking about uh, large-scale strikes uh, that are um, maintained uh, for days, they aren't just a flash in the pan, Uh, maybe uh, the kind of linking up uh, between factories or even provinces that I mentioned earlier, Uh, Demands uh, for uh, much more in terms of wages, uh, demands for institutional reforms like a reorganized enterprise-level branch of China's official trade union, and the involvement of more sort of committed, um, movement-oriented activists, uh, especially uh, from uh, more movement-oriented labor NGOs. Again, you know, this all depends a little bit on the context, but as you move down that uh, spectrum from contained uh, to more boundary-spanning and even transgressive activism, you put more pressure
1: on the local government. Okay. So um, so you're saying there's, there's different recipes for resistance, and then they, you know, result in... Uh, so the re- recipe is kind of the the... Background conditions of like what the economic situation is there, you know, who who's employed, and what kinds of industries, um, what kinds of grievances they have, and then uh, this results in different forms of resistance. Resistance, so it may take the more uh, boundary spanning or transgressive form, or it may uh, play by the rules more in this kind of constrained format. Um, and then, you know, the next step of your argument is that there's then different counter strategies from local governments. Uh, so, so what are those counter strategies and why, why do they choose them in response to these different um, kinds of resistance?
2: The default for local governments is what I call an orthodox way of handling unrest. So, uh, that means preempting things as much as possible. So, really carefully monitoring workplaces and nipping burgeoning disputes in the bud. Um, a caution when it comes to labor laws and the programming of local uh, trade union branches. So, just passing laws that tweak uh, national guidelines uh, in light of local circumstances. Having the unions really focus on sort of old functions inherited from the state socialist era, you know, handing out um, goods at holidays, taking care of workers with special uh, family uh, difficulties, that kind of thing. And then nudging capital and labor into line. So uh, setting things up like a harmonious enterprises initiative that rewards. bosses who um, follow local labor laws, uh, giving labor NGOs some office space, uh, but steering them clear of more sensitive programming, that kind of thing. That's what I call the orthodox approach, and it works uh, when you have uh, contained or maybe at most kind of boundary spanning uh, resistance from workers. And it doesn't just work, it's kind of a smart bet uh, for local officials because mixing things up, introducing something new, uh, could always inadvertently um, uh, feed unrest uh, where there isn't that much already. Uh, So their incentives are completely to just keep things going as they are, uh, uh, gently uh, uh, keep everything in line. But once you get uh, more boundary spanning and then outright uh, transgressive activism. Uh, the calculus for officials is a little bit different. Um, now uh, the risk uh, is uh, to be uh, viewed in the eyes of their superiors as uh, not doing enough in the face of rising uh, contention, and so they'll start to uh, mix things up and take a more uh, uh, experimental approach, more risk-taking approach, and um, That means, uh, first of all, uh, being in a more reactive role, uh, not trying to monitor everything, not trying to get ahead of every strike and protest, but focusing uh, their energy on big flare-ups, experimenting when it comes uh, to labor laws. So, uh, for example, in Guangdong, you see the province uh, coming close uh, in uh, some of its cities uh, to recognizing Um, the sort of normalness of striking and uh, pushing the local trade union to have uh, elections for uh, enterprise-level union leaders, uh, that kind of thing, Uh, but also uh, cracking down uh, much harder uh, on uh, labor activists in particular, maybe taking a somewhat tougher line uh, with businesses, but coming down on labor activists. Uh, in particular, so leaving that nudging behind and uh, and ungloving the the fist or whatever the um, the uh, metaphor is and just uh, uh, smacking uh, down opposition.
1: So kind of more um, it's interesting. It's not sort of so it's not clearly like repression or not because in a certain sense you're saying it's maybe less repressive because of this innovation in institutions saying okay we need to find a channel for people to uh, you know, express workplace grievances and get them resolved and, you know, or maybe even, you know, go so far as legally go on strike, uh, if they're, uh, being mistreated or underpaid or whatever enough. Um, but also, uh, then, then being much more, uh, harsh, um, with sort of, I guess, expanding the space of what's permitted, um, and setting up new institutions, but then being even harsher on those who, who cross the line. Is it, would that be kind of the the summary?
2: That's right. And the way I see it, it, this doesn't have to happen via some sort of big master plan. Uh, each arm of the local government acts in the way uh, it knows how. So the public security system uh, starts really swinging into gear and uh, smashing worker organizations. But the trade union uh, starts uh, acting on uh, various proposals that have been put its way. Uh, for uh, being more responsive to workers, uh, channeling workers' uh, desires better. Uh, the uh, labor bureaus maybe inspect a little bit more, or in, in the case of some parts of Guangdong, you know, come up with blacklists of employers uh, that have uh, frequently violated the law or been behind in, in uh, various payments that they're owed, that kind of thing. So each part of the government does... Uh, uh, what it knows best, uh, whether uh, by design or by accident. And the result, then, is these different sort of regional models of control. Uh, you've got you know, uh, lots of provinces in China, lots of cities, a lot of uh, diversity in local economic structures and state uh, capacity. But in general, uh, those are the two sort of archetypes I'm putting forward, a sort of orthodox way of controlling things. And then this more risk-taking way of controlling things. That's uh, both uh, harsher and
1: uh, uh, more uh, conciliatory at once. So I feel like, you know, because you, you, you mentioned your background and, and it kind of, it kind of comes out a little bit in the book. I think there's an element where, you know, you're, you're thinking about this from the worker's perspective of like what, what works and what gets better outcomes or, or progress, um, towards uh a more uh you know just system or, or however, you, however you might define it i don't want to put too many words in your mouth but um uh so so but i'm not sure but i'm curious what you think is the answer based on uh based on what you found so you found that you know there there are there are different models that uh, result in different you know different strategies by the um by the workers and then different uh, different responses um from from the state but uh if, uh, if you were going to recommend a strategy to a, a worker activist in China, uh, what, based on your research, well, is there a recommendation you could make?
2: The more I've studied China, the more I feel like, uh, I'm, uh, I'm the right thing to do is to defer to people on the ground. And, and the more I'm sort of in awe of, of, uh, how many, uh, variables activists have to juggle in their heads at any given moment. And, Know, the less uh, likely I'd be to offer any advice. Um, but, you know, just based on their actions, I think workers in China have, you know, weighed uh, the uh, the downside and the upside of uh, putting pressure on the government. And they've found uh, that uh, the upside um, outweighs uh, the downside. So uh, the repression, uh, uh, so far seems uh, in their eyes to have been uh, worth uh, the concessions that they ring both from their employers and from the government. So, so the sort of general advice would be to keep uh, uh, pushing. Um, and I, I think most uh, activists in China um, know uh, that you have to engage in this sort of a delicate uh, dance of, of exactly how far you push and when to step back and and uh and when to um to engage the government and when to put some distance between oneself and the government
1: okay so so i interviewed uh kind of going on to the next step which i think builds from what we're just saying you know is it like i mentioned i interviewed yali last week for her book about protests and you know her emphasis um was on the idea that Chinese protesters are playing by the rules, which is, um, you know, an idea I've, I've put forward in my work also. Um, and that tends to right. place a lot more agency with the government as a rule setter. Um, and I think, but, you know, your emphasis is very much on the other side. It's like that taking the sort of, you know, the exogenous thing is the the change in worker strategies. Um, and I think we all know that there's a lot of feedback loops, you know, going going every, every direction. But how do you, uh, you know, how do you distinguish... One from the other. What kind of evidence you know pushes you more towards the idea of saying that really the the kind of agency or the first mover is with the um, uh, with the workers versus it being with the government, or versus you know a, a third view would be maybe kind of what we'd call a structural view that there's some uh, you know economic or social variables that that uh, vary across provinces or across time, and that those those drive the sort of uh, equilibrium responses by um, by both both workers and uh, and the state well it's
2: obviously uh, like you said uh, circular uh, to some degree and uh, partially just a question of emphasis whether one's uh, focusing more on uh, bottom-up uh, pressures or top-down uh, policies I do a couple things in the book uh, to try uh, to um, you know, isolate the bottom-up pressures uh, from those top-down policies. And uh, one is uh, just running some statistical analysis of rates of strikes, protests, and riots. And then um, having as my outcome pro-worker or split decisions in mediation, arbitration, and court. On the one hand, sort of a rough uh, measure of responsiveness. Uh, basically the government's willingness uh, to to, uh, set aside the interests of powerful local employers and make concessions to workers, and then uh, spending on the paramilitary people's armed uh, police on the other. And what I find is that uh, more worker unrest uh, leads uh, to more uh, split or pro-worker decisions and fewer uh, pro-business decisions, Uh, and it means uh, more um, spending on police. And if I um, go a little bit further and sort of instrument on the past values of uh, labor unrest, uh, so go back a couple steps, uh, so that we're sure uh, that the labor unrest isn't being uh, in turn uh, you know, shaped by um, a police spending or court decisions in the same, same period, uh, you see the same uh, uh, pattern there. Uh, so you can see that they're uh, still uh, driving uh, police spending in particular, uh, you do see uh, some obvious feedback uh, from um, court decisions. Uh, so you see that uh, labor unrest in turn uh, is responding uh, to pro-worker and split decisions, uh, but you see it uh, still driving down sort of outright a pro-business uh, decisions. So that's sort of the statistical uh, uh, attempt to deal with that. Uh, issue. The other thing I do is uh, look at a third sort of shadow case of Chongqing and argue that Chongqing is the kind of place uh, where uh, you would expect to see uh, labor uh, reforms uh, if anywhere, um, if the reforms uh, basically start uh, from the top rather than at workers' initiative. And the reason I say you would expect to see reforms in Chongqing is one, you know, it's a dynamic uh, place, a growing economy, lots of investment uh, flowing in there, uh, and two, um, for a good chunk of time, it was uh, run uh, by uh, first uh, Wang Yang, uh sort of liberal uh, reformist, and then, uh, of course, by Bo Xilai, uh, the sort of left uh, populist uh, reformist, and They, if anyone, albeit for different personal reasons, uh, would seem like the kind of people who'd want to jump in and uh, tweak the way industrial relations uh, were run. Uh, But I show that across uh, both of their administrations in Chongqing, you didn't really see anything innovative uh, when it came to labor law, the role of the trade union, uh, any of that. Some little tweaks, uh, but nothing that strayed too far uh, from national uh, legislation but uh when Wang Yang was transferred to Guangdong uh he jumped right in uh passed a number of local laws um oversaw uh, a relatively uh you know progressive handling of some major strikes etc my argument is that uh Basically, uh, reformists are reformists, Uh, people in the government who want to shake things up will want to shake things up, but they'll only focus on uh, labor issues uh, when there are big labor issues uh, to focus on. So the momentum uh, still comes from what's happening at the grassroots
1: Okay, but then um, what about at the at the national level? You know, you've alluded to you know obviously that the things in general have become a lot tighter under Xi Jinping. Um, you know, to what extent? Well, first of all, you know how how you know I know your your research period kind of you know overlapped that. Like a lot of your quantitative data is from the prior period, but then your, a lot of your field research was was during the early years of the, the of Xi Jinping's control, and obviously you've been following this closely um, since then. So you know, how much, you know, what, what has changed under him? Um, how much do you think, like, was it under him or was it sort of pre existing trends that he just uh, kind of pushed a little bit further? Um, and uh, yeah, and how does that, how does that affect our, our view of, you know, the extent to which things are top down versus bottom up? If it's, you know, if to take one view would just be, oh, Xi Jinping came in and he just likes control. And so now there's a lot more control and a lot less space to do anything.
2: Well, it certainly is true uh, that there's a lot less uh, space uh, to do things now uh, than before he came to power. Uh, Looking at the strike data uh, from uh, China Labor Bulletin rather than my data set and police spending numbers, et cetera, it does seem like the patterns break down a bit after Xi, um, but it's a little bit hard to say because the People's Armed Police uh, numbers aren't available after 2009. And again, I'm relying on China labor bulletin strike data rather than my own. So there might be some, you know, difference in counting right there. Uh, there's also maybe been some centralization of certain things, especially spending that uh, further uh, confuses the analysis. And um, at any rate, though, like people who read my book really carefully uh, will notice uh, not just that uh, a lot of the data is from the who wen era, uh, but that the repression of labor activists that I discuss is really weighted toward the last years uh, covered by the book, especially uh, 2015, when a number of activists in Guangdong uh, were detained and a couple of them were put on trial. And then again in uh, 2018, uh, 2019, when the same thing happened again, in addition to this crackdown on Marxist students, um, the labor NGOs uh, that went the furthest in terms of uh, being a part of collective bargaining and that sort of thing have been cracked down uh, really harshly. Uh, while others have been pushed out or just driven into kind of mild uh, service-oriented programming. As in uh, uh, 2008, right after the uh, financial crisis, post-COVID, there's been a real push to loosen the regulatory burden on companies, which has meant weaker enforcement of labor laws in some respects. And even before COVID, there was some talk under Xi among certain officials uh, that the labor contract law had gone too far and that sort of thing. Uh, but I think there's been a real um, responsiveness uh, where there's been a real uh, push. Uh, so um, the Xi administration uh, made a big deal a few years back of um, cutting back excess capacity in coal and steel. And when there were big strikes up in the Northeast among those old uh, state sector miners, uh, they backtracked and slowed things down um, more recently. Uh, you've seen the government make uh, a big push, at least rhetorically, against uh, abuses in the gig economy, especially among um, food delivery workers. And I don't think that's a I don't think it's a coincidence that that follows on a lot of activism among uh, delivery workers, uh, uh, strikes by delivery workers, protests, and a couple sad instances of self-immolation. Um, and I think it's maybe worth mentioning, too, that there were some really big crackdowns uh, long before uh, she uh, was a part of the picture. Uh, if we go back uh, to that state-owned enterprise activism uh, that predates the period covered by my book, uh, you saw uh, you know, massive deployments of the People's Armed Police up to the Northeast, uh, workers getting 10-year uh, sentences uh, for their activism reports of uh, at least in one instance, you know, a tank being uh, pulled out into the streets. Um, so I, I think there's just a lot more continuity uh, than people uh, usually think.
1: Yeah, it does seem like there's a lot of uh, you know. Sometimes listening to the discourse uh, about um, all the you know absolutely troubling things happening um, under Xi and the human rights abuses uh, you know uh, around the country, it's it's easy to sometimes like, you know, I get this thing, like think like the, the counterfactual there, there's this sort of imagine imaginary past that um, people are thinking of, like back when China was, I mean, I don't think anyone would say that if you say, you know, if you actually ask them, like, was China really such a, you know, an awesome open society before, you know, I don't think anyone who knows anything or even, you know, has, you know, read a book or two would, would think that, but yet it somehow seems implicit that like, uh, you know, the nineties or early two thousands were, you know, I mean, I guess the thing, the point is there, there was sort of a relative golden era, but there's never been a period where, where, you know, it wasn't an autocratic state that was willing to use repression, uh, when it felt it needed to, to, to maintain control or achieve whatever political objectives. Um, so yeah, so I think it's good to, um, you know, acknowledge, acknowledge those changes, but not, um, not forget that, um, you know, this, uh, this country has a long history of, of, uh, of, of violence and repression um, in, in a lot of different, a uh, lot of different eras through the present.
2: Yeah, and and I wonder if sort of the big difference was sort of people's projections into the future back then, uh, more than uh, what they were noticing around them, or, or maybe rather that their projections of sort of future uh, Chinese political liberalization made them sort of discount some things they saw around them and uh, highlight other things, and and they. Now their projections make them look at other things. I had a paper out um, last year with uh, with with uh, with Yao Li, uh, who you just interviewed, um, looking at uh, the likelihood of a protest um, resulting in sort of you know really overt uh, repression. Uh, Given local uh, police spending under uh, Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, and versus uh, Xi Jinping, and uh, maybe you got into this uh, in your interview uh, with her, but, but what we found uh, was that you know on average under Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, uh, somewhere that spent more on police um, uh, was. Uh, less likely uh, to crack down on a protest or rather a protest in such a place was less likely uh, to be cracked down upon. And then the opposite was true uh, under Xi. So, you know, coercive capacity uh, is the way we thought of it. Coercive capacity uh, was being deployed differently. But maybe the most uh, interesting thing uh, we found, uh, from my perspective at least, is that that inflection point, you know, happened before Xi came into office. So it happened right after the Olympics around uh 2009 or so. Um, so, uh, you know, what's the takeaway there? It's that uh, the Xi era is obviously uh, more uh, repressive, uh, but maybe uh, his policies are the result of some sort of uh, uh, elite consensus uh, that had started to form even before he came to office and that he's maybe more a
1: product of than a cause of. hmm yeah and it does i mean and and uh also just this your finding is is really fascinating you know because we're always uh, i mean in the u.s also you know discussions of defund the police and how do we deal with uh you know excessive police violence and there you know one one line of argument which is certainly plausible is if you have less police and they're less you know uh less armed you'll have more peaceful outcomes and you know certainly there's instances where uh you know it seems like the the police local police departments go and raid the army surplus store and get themselves, you know, tanks. And, you know, they buy a missile (laughs) if they could. And, you know, once you've got those toys, then, then there's a sense that you'll you'll want to use them. Um, But then on the other hand uh, there's the, the idea that, yeah, when you're, if you're, if you're well-armed and confident and you do know what you're doing, then you can actually avoid violence. And that was an argument that was made in in China around the 1989 repression that, you know, what happened in Beijing, there would have been, you know, Thing, there still would have been repression, but it, instead of it being with tanks and guns, because they just had, you know, they had a military, um, they could have been with, you know, uh, you know, fire hoses and tear gas and rubber bullets, which you know is harsh enough, but it's it's not not the same as lead bullets. Um, so you can kind of see it going both both ways. And it's interesting to hear that in the in the Hu era, it was more, you know, being better armed let you kind of. I mean to overstate, but it seemed like it was associated with uh, uh, the police being a little bit more calmer and even-handed, or, or the local authorities being calmer, calm and even-handed in their use of the police. Whereas under Xi, it's more like, well, now we have the toys, and if we're, you know, if you stand up to us, we're gonna be we're gonna be strong, China. <laughs> you know, just as they're being a little bit, you know, yeah. more more macho in a sense abroad, they're also being a little bit more macho with uh, with uh, discontent uh, domestically. Um, yeah. So the politics
2: obviously um, matter, uh, not just the equipment available. Yeah.
1: Um, all right. Well, this has been great. So um, bef- uh, before we go, I wanted to ask you uh, just a couple more things, you know, not about the um, book. Uh, so first, um, I mean, I, I know you've continued to work on these areas, but but what are you working on now? Are you uh, pushing uh, more research on uh, on labor activism or opening up new areas? Um, what What's happening with you now?
2: I've started to shift to some uh, related but uh, still distinct uh, topics. So I've got a paper under review right now uh, with an Egypt scholar or Middle East scholar, Killian Clark, uh, looking at lumpen proletarians like uh, small criminals, odd jobs workers, or chronically unemployed people uh, in uh, China versus Egypt. Uh, we, you know, we've all uh, who follow China, we've all read. Uh, reports about uh, these people being hired as uh, thugs to beat up uh, farmers, to beat up uh, workers, you know, hired by local authorities or local um, economic elites. Uh, But we've also heard about them escalating uh, protests out of control in places like Wangan and that sort of thing. Uh, So we're looking at, uh, you know, what kind of uh, incidents uh, tend to draw in uh, these people on the side of protesters, um, and, um, and, uh, how the, sort of nature of their participation can, uh, change, uh, between a, um, sort of relatively, uh, stable uh, situation like China's, uh, versus, uh, a situation of, that's more in flux in Egypt. So that's one, uh, that's one, uh, project. Another is I'm starting on a comparative project about contentious politics in uh, Shanxi um, and maybe uh, China's uh, uh, north, uh, northwest uh, more generally and West Virginia and maybe uh, America's Appalachia uh, more generally. I lived in Shanxi for a couple of years after college and the mine wars and all that other resistance in Appalachia or something that's always just kind of pulled at my heartstrings. Uh, So for now, I'm just reading lots of books about Appalachia in particular. Um, uh, And it's a bit of a comparison in search of a good
1: uh, research question at this point. Uh, But those are two things that I'm working on right now. The last thing I wanted to ask you was um, just as a fun thing, uh, do you have any recommendations for our listeners?
2: Yeah, I've got uh, two recommendations. Uh, One... um, comes from that uh, Appalachia-Shanchi project I'm starting. And uh, the other is a website. Uh, so the uh, first one is a book uh, by Stephen Stoll. Uh, who's a historian uh, from 2017 called Ramp Hollow, The Ordeal of Appalachia. Uh, we're all familiar with the process of enclosing the commons in Britain. And this book explains how uh, American mountaineers, you know, people like... Um, Uh, Daniel Boone, and so on, uh, moved into the hard-to-farm parts of the Appalachians as essentially squatters on land owned by wealthy people like George Washington, uh, following uh, the genocide of nations like the Shawnee and, of course, the uh, Cherokee. But then these uh, people themselves were forced into the mines uh, when both the mining and before that the timber industry uh, destroyed the forests that these mountaineers relied on as a foraging space for their animals, as hunting grounds, and as a source of wild plants like the uh, ramps that give the book its name. Uh, it's just a really well-written book and, and a really sad one. Um, the other recommendation uh, is the Cornell uh, University ILR School. That's the uh, Industrial and Labor Relations schools, a strike tracker, uh, which can be found at uh, Strike Tracker. Uh, It's a really similar uh, strike map to mine and to China labor bulletins, uh, but it's focused on the United States. Uh, So America's Mm. Bureau of Labor Statistics only tracks strikes that are bigger than a thousand people, or it's only done that since the Reagan era. And there have been some little private efforts to fill in the gap, uh, like uh, Bloomberg has something called the uh, Bloomberg BNA Labor Plus data set or something like that and there's a journalist named mike elk who started a similar map to cornell's uh uh, early on during the covid pandemic uh but uh, cornell's promises to be much more uh, comprehensive and so far they've pulled together like 160 some incidents the last time i checked uh, yesterday over the past couple years and they're just constantly adding more and are pretty transparent about uh, how they go about finding these Uh, so uh, one are they going back in
1: history or just uh, trying to collect things going forward?
2: Uh, my impression is that they're primarily trying to track things going forward, but I saw a couple incidents uh, from uh, uh, the past couple years. Uh, so uh, maybe uh, they're also trying to start reaching back. Um, my guess is uh, they'll uh, document uh, 2021 onward the best.
1: Right. Well, that sounds like a great, it'll be a great resource for uh, political scientists and economists uh yeah, wanting to understand the interaction between labor and uh, and business in the u.s yeah and making comparisons uh uh to places like uh china right right yeah actually the yeah i mean your point about um the Xi Jinping and hu jintao contrast of you know whether whether more equipment leads to more or less violence uh i guess strikes in the u.s tend to you know be met with violence much much less in general but uh Yeah. Anyway, it should be a lot of, at least nowadays they do at least nowadays. Right. Right. (laughs) We have, we have a history, uh, a pretty bloody history from the early, early years. That's for sure. Um, okay. Well, thank you very much. That's about all the time I have. Um, but thanks so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed having you. Yeah. Thanks so much
2: for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation too.